Your love, God's love, is better than life. Do you really think that, though, as you wake up in the morning? You know, when you've been dwelling on the things that you long to have, aspire to be, I mean, is the love of God better than all of that that you've dreamt and imagined? It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Think about it this way. What would you give up first? Um, let's give you an option A and then an option B. An option A, let's go for many of us, that might be a lot of money. Let's say infinite amounts of money. Okay? Just, that's option A. And now say, the love of God. Option B. Which would you give up first? We used to play that as a kid. Would you rather? Did you ever play that? Okay, let's play that then. Um, that's a great game. Would you rather? Let's, let's go for something else. Not money, but let's say good looks or, you know, handsomeness, if that is a real word, you know, that would give you all the security that you've ever longed for in your own skin, maybe potential with relation, all that kind of stuff that would come with that. So would you rather, option A, wonderful, dazzling looks, or would you rather be the love of God? Think of life. Think of life now at its absolute best in your heart and your mind. And is the love of God better than that? King David, who's perhaps at this stage one of the wealthiest men of the whole known world, certainly one of the most popular men, apart from one or two enemies, certainly one of the most talented and very brave men in the known world. King David says, the love of God, it trumps all that I've got. It's better than everything that I have. It's better and bigger than everything that I am. Even better than the thing that we probably value more than anything else, and that is life itself. How does David say this? Let's look at the context to help us understand about how David has come to this kind of conclusion, uh, to make this statement, and how he understands life now and the love of God, and brings those two together. Look at the heading, if you can. It's kind of verse naught in our sight. In the Psalms as it's written there. And it is part of scripture. It's not an add-in by the, by the translation team. It is there. Verse naught. Um, it shows that David, despite his wealth, his honour and his fun, he finds himself, look where he finds himself, in the desert of Judah, the wilderness, as elsewhere, it's translated elsewhere. He's a refugee at this stage in his life. Now, he's either fleeing one of two people. He's either fleeing Saul, and you can read about that in 1 Samuel uh, 15 and following, or he's fleeing his third son, Ab- Absalom. You can read about that in 2 Samuel uh, 16 onwards. The more likely situation is David is fleeing Absalom in this situation. Why? Cast your eyes down to verse 11. You'll see he says, the king. He refers to himself as the king, and he wasn't the king when Saul was chasing him. Now, he'd been anointed as king by Samuel, but he hadn't been appointed king within the land. It doesn't really matter, to be honest. The situation is, he's in the wilderness, he's in the desert. Those two possible circumstances and contexts, they're both desperately disappointing, aren't they? In themselves. And hence why the psalm begins with that note, that overtone of despondency. David is obviously low, look at it in verse 1. He's weary, he's thirsty, but to... To David, that is not an acceptable place to stay. 
as he begins his day. He finds himself in times of trouble. But unlike the great Beatles song, he does not allow it to let it be. He just doesn't let it be. This psalm is a call to Christians and anyone who would, who would listen. If you find yourself in a dry, in a weary place, seemingly distant from God, perhaps you fear you may never be able to get back to that kind of level of intimacy and joy that you once knew in relationship with God. Well, this psalm should bring confidence to a weary soul. Because it shows us, it it actually shows us a day, a day in the life of a Christian. And that day, that life exposes the tough reality of this world. And in that reality, it exposes the heart of a true believer, a true Christian. That is what is exposed. So I want to encourage us all as we begin today, come and look. Come and see what the heart of a true believer really looks like, so that you might actually today begin a journey of maybe just turning back toward God and look forward to that sweet and intimate relationship that you may have known in the past, but you long for now. Why? Because wouldn't it be lovely to say those words that David said in verse 3? The love of God is... Better than life. It is. Here's the reality though. It's hard isn't it? Life. And what do I mean by that? It isn't hard because many of us find ourselves as David did. Persecuted. A refugee in a wilderness. Fearing spears, swords and all that kind of stuff. It could be that. But we don't face that often do we in Ellsfield? Starvation. The fear of our lives, a wilderness, desert situation. Life is hard for us and it leads us to our own wilderness, if you like. But we don't face the physical threats, I doubt, that David will have done in this situation. It is actually the opposite that takes us to our wilderness. It it is actually the, the, the ease of our lives. That can so quickly take us to the wilderness. David finds himself in the desert here. The wilderness away from God. Probably because of very, very different reasons to us. But I think what's most important is to see how he responds. That we might do likewise. Look at verse 1. I mean, He doesn't hold back, does he? There's an honesty here that ought to hopefully correct our very polite but distant prayers from God. Look at it. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. David wakes in our morning. Look at our translation. It says, earnestly I seek you. Other translations, probably more accurate, say early I seek you. That's the same thing, isn't it? Because if you wake early to seek God, you're earnest in, in doing so. You kind of get why the translation team did that. But you know, note how David begins his day. And what does he do? He demonstrates, and I'll put a point down here, a thirst for God. If you want to know what to be a real, true Christian looks like, the hallmark of a real believer, a day in the life of a Christian begins with a thirst for God. 
Let's look at that verse. I'll read the whole way through this time. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Is that right? I mean, can we uh, and do we seek God? Certainly is the impression if you, if you ask around, if you're friends, you know, in, in Hillsville today, people believe that they are seeking God. They're on a voyage towards God, a journey, a discovery, and so on. And they do so in their own way, through their own means. And whether it is the, the religions of the world or the culture at large, humanity is, we've flattered ourselves, haven't we? To say, oh, we'll go searching after God uh, when, when it suits us. That is in our nature. We'll, we'll, we'll find our way there somehow, some way, some when, whenever, whatever we're talking about, lost there. But we will take the initiative. That's what people think. Do you remember Psalm 53 last week? You may know Romans 3, 10 and 11, which quotes Psalm 53 and says no one seeks God. Absolutely no one. And in Psalm 53, essentially God looks from above, takes this panoramic view of all of our lives, of every single person in history. His, his view and gaze is perennial and universal over all time, over all places. And he says, no one. I can't find one. I can't find one person that seeks after me. Not one. Sadly and foolishly, God has been reduced in our culture to kind of the one who begs for our attention when we are on our journeys to discover him. That is not the biblical understanding of what seeking God is. So is David lying when he says, earnestly I seek you? Can anyone seek God? Now, sometimes in churches we use that language that people are seeking God. And that's got some biblical merit, hasn't it? There are those who we know, friends, um, kind of local people, who are asking questions. They're seeking to find out more about the claims of the Christian faith. We might call them seekers. Some people do, some people don't. But that is, they aren't Christians But they're looking, seeking for more knowledge of the Christian faith. It has some biblical merit, but it's not entirely accurate. Because anyone who is beginning to seek after God, to find out more questions, God has already worked in them. He's the one who's begun. He's the one who's taken initiative. He's the one who's softened their hearts to give them questions in their minds. So who is the true seeker here? Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. Well, it's the Christian here. The person of repentance and faith, devoted to the teaching of the Bible. They are the ones who, through that covenant faith that they've put their trust in the Lord Jesus, they can call God, as we see in verse 1, my God. Through that covenant of faith. See, the true Christian is the one that God has found And given them a heart to long, to know more, to seek after God, to press on. The heart that is hungry for maturity, for better things for themselves and for those that they love and for the world around them. 
Do you seek God? Sadly, too often we see this as a kind of a negative. That is, we see seeking. Look at all those other kind of words there. Seeking, um, kind of thirsting, longing. It implies weakness, doesn't it? And that is true. It does, but perfect satisfaction with God has not been found in any of us. So you see, there is a strength in seeking. There is a strength in thirsting for God. It is an admittance. It's a, it's a hands out before God. You know, I, I feel parched. I feel hungry. I feel in need. I am in a wilderness in this life. And I want more of you. I need more of you. We feel alone and distant, yet we want to be close and intimate. And that is the reality. And what better way to deal with the reality than begin a day seeking, thirsting, longing for God. John Piper put it this way in his um, quite famous book, Desiring God. When speaking of this psalm, many of you have read that book. He says, there are two ways to worship and savour God. By fainting for him, that word faint is the word longing in, um, in other translations, so he's using that word. There are two ways to worship and save your God, by fainting for him or feasting on him. Fainting is the form of worship when God feels distant. Feasting is the form of worship when God is near and both are an honour to him. A tribute and a glory to him. Do you see that the wilderness of this life, the struggles, the pains, the suffering, the loss. God will use those dry and weary times to wean us. To take us from the world and all its pleasures and put all our trust in him and in him alone. You may right now feel in a very dry and weary place where there is no water. That is, there is no God, the giver of life. He just seems distant from you. It seems that there is no refreshment or relief in your struggles and your pain. But God is still God. Seek him. Start the day Thirsting for him in his word and through prayer. That intimate relationship building gift that we have. And long for him with your whole being. For that is as glorifying to him. And it's also as as satisfying to us as it is in the best of days. When you're feasting on God and you have such a close relationship with him. So verse 1. Oh God you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Start the day like that tomorrow. It is how a true Christian starts a day. Now let's turn to the second hallmark of uh, the heart of a real believer. The second thing in the day of a life of a Christian, if you like. You see, secondly, a a deep gratitude for God. And we see that through kind of verses 2 to 5. Let's go 2 and 3 to begin with. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. 
I think we see in these next few verses this, this deep-seated gratitude in the psalmist. This isn't just better than all the things of this life. It's better than life itself, which we protect and value so much. The steadfast covenant love of God is bigger. It's better than all the investment that you plough into your own lives. And the psalmist, this whole psalm is littered with gratitude, deep gratitude for all that love, that covenant love. In verse 2 we see David has enjoyed this awe-inspiring closeness uh, with God in the sanctuary, in the temple. He's been overwhelmed with the power and the glory. If you've read Isaiah 6 and the first few verses of that chapter, it's very reminiscent of that, isn't it? Just overwhelmed with the glory of God. David has been close to God. He's beheld his power, his immense glory. But look at the two insights that follow from that. Firstly, God remains powerful to him despite his feeling of feeling distant in the dry and the weary land of verse 1. But secondly, God's love is even more satisfying, as he says in verse 3, than life itself. You see, the first provides hope, despite of the circumstances he's facing. The second provides strength to remain faithful, even to death. Which is a great possibility for David in these circumstances. Good question to ask about verse 2. Have you ever beheld the power and the glory of God? Oh, you haven't in the terms of Isaiah 6 or... Perhaps as, as David had here, but when we open up the Word of God, the Bible, every day, we gaze upon the glory of God in its fullness. As we look at Jesus Christ, He is the one who gave up all power and all glory so that we might receive all power and all glory. And when we do that, when we begin to gaze on the Lord Jesus, That is the the point that we see the love of God. And we see that that is better than life itself. This love mentioned here is is the covenant love. If you remember back to when we looked at Ruth. It's quite hard to outdo a Harley Davidson, isn't it, when you're preaching? Never mind. Good going. Um, I don't know if you remember looking back at Ruth. One of the major themes of the book of Ruth and that story is is God's covenant love. And the, the Hebrew term is basically hesed. And... It is a faithful love, established in a covenant, a promise. And throughout history that has been demonstrated, God has been faithful to his covenant, established in Abraham and all the other patriarchs. And it is one where that God has always remained faithful, despite the unfaithfulness of his people. It is a love that is exercised in undeserved and unmerited grace. God is abounding in love, rich in mercy, as the psalm shows. If you have forgotten his love for you, ask yourself why. Why have you forgotten it? I guess you know the answer. You've probably just picked up your Bible and turned it over and closed it. You've probably said something like, I'm too tired. Or I'm too busy. You've not beheld the glory and power of God And you begin to therefore forget the covenant love of God. 
There are some obvious and instinctive responses they show, that show this deep gratitude for God and his faithful love. Do you respond to God in these ways? Look at them very quickly. Look what he says, my lips will glorify you. Notice David speaks here in like future tenses. You see that? As, as the day unfolds, he's promising himself before God and he's promising to God as well. My lips will glorify you. They're going to. There's no hidden gesture or any empty sentiment here. And look at the extent of his praise. It involves all sorts of things, these public spoken uh, testimonies as well. It is obvious in him as a person that, is, that he wants to praise God with the lifting up of his hands and this joyful singing. Now, I'm not suggesting you walk into work like that tomorrow, just, just in case you're, you're wondering. I think that probably wouldn't go down with your boss very well. But do you see? There is deep gratitude, praise within his heart, evidence in his life. It is deep, it is meaningful, it is contented praise. God is faithful in his, in his love and his grace. How do you respond? Look at the second response. My soul, he says, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of food. I had a steak on Thursday night and you wouldn't quite believe the size of it. It was a true monster of a steak. And I have not felt so satisfied in my stomach for a good number of months. It was, and I thank the people who took us out for dinner. Uh, just, it was quite amazing. And yes, I could go on about steak for so long. It's satisfied. It truly satisfied. I didn't eat for about 24 hours. But when we see God's glory and power and committed love, look what it does. It provides thirsting David in a dry and weary land with life-sustaining satisfaction. The word used at the beginning of verse 5, soul, do you see it there? It's interesting. We, we sometimes just say the soul, it must be the heart, it must be the mind, a kind of combination of the two. But actually the word goes a little bit further. Because it actually says satisfaction of the body too. Because of God's faithful love, it's better than life. David will therefore be satisfied with his whole being. Can you imagine that? Once again, note that David speaks to himself and trusts in God. My soul will be satisfied. He's saying that to himself, but he's also saying it to God. He's saying, as I go through the day... As I see things, as I feel things, as all those longings and those urges come out, yes, I will remember that my soul, my body, my heart will only be truly satisfied when I trust in God's covenant love. It is helpful, isn't it, when we're thinking about turning our backs on God and his word? Maybe as we're thinking about, I don't know what, let's say dating a non-Christian. The Bible's really clear. But, you know, it's easy to just close it, isn't it? No, maybe when you're thinking about having a bit more sleep and satisfying, your that way, satisfying yourself that way rather than just opening up the word and spending some time looking and gazing at the power and the glory of God through Christ. Let's not deceive ourselves. Our souls will be satisfied. 
Notice, you know, everything will be satisfied. Do you trust that? Do you trust God when he speaks to you? Notice also with the singing of lips and my mouth will, will praise you. I, I, I shared a hymn on Tuesday at, the, at our prayer meeting. It's my favourite hymn. And um, it didn't go down too well because no one could get the third line of it. But um, uh, I, I force myself to sing that sometimes in the morning. My mouth will praise you. Note, will, future tense. I'm going to do it. I sing this. I love thee because thou hast first loved me. And purchase my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Singing, however lacking in tune that you are, is a great way to praise God. And remember that in him alone, in him alone, that is the only way you're going to find true satisfaction. The Christian thirst for God has a deep gratitude for God. Thirdly, these last two are much quicker, so don't panic. Um, it has a clinging for God. What national anthem have you heard the most over the last couple of weeks? It's pretty obvious. Look at the gold, look at the gold table. Which national anthem? It's the American national anthem, Courtney and one or two others. There we go. <coughs> the ch- hasn't been on TV. You won the gold last night. It was a moving, chest-thumping time. John Stafford Smith, in 1814, wrote the classic Star-Spangled Banner. And it's a wonderful tune. It is probably the only reason I want to be American. I love the place, don't get me wrong. It's a brilliant, brilliant country. Krispy Kremes, American National Anthem. Can I say this very graciously, though? The song is arrogant. The song is arrogant. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. Oh, the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. I mean, it's all about them and what they can do and the land of the free and the home of the brave that they conquered and they brought freedom to. Verse 2 is equally vitriolic. It's interesting though, verse 3 turns, if you know the song. And it's interesting, the flag still flies high. But there is no refuge from the terror and the horror of war that is spoken about in the third verse of that national anthem. And the gloom of the grave. And then at last in verse 4. Oh, thus be it ever, when freemen shall stand. Between their loved home and war's desolation, blessed with victory and peace, may heaven's rescued land praise the power that have made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. It's the American National Anthem and it's a wonderful song but it should not be the song of anyone's life. Because it leaves it too late. 
David's song from morning until night has been the same. He thirsts for God in the morning, has a deep gratitude throughout the day. He's seen the power and the glory of God and the covenant faithful love of God. And so he responds, saying in the future tense, I will, I will, my soul be satisfied, I will praise you. Through every moment of his day, of his life, he says, I will. And so only now, after a day, trusting in God, can he be on the bed at night, in the present tense, notice, verse 6. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night, because you are my help. Right now, you're my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Right now it does. I've trusted you throughout the day. and Right now, you uphold me. See, the Christian is the one who clings to God, whatever the circumstances. And David does it reminding himself of who God is. He thinks of God in his sleeplessness, in his concern for his life, in his worry. He doesn't just let it be. The day in the life of a Christian isn't just kind of, I'll I'll mention God at the end. Like one particular national anthem. I guess many, many, many others. I'm not picking on Americans. I love them dearly. A day in the life of a Christian it begins with a thirst for God. It is a deep gratitude for God that, that it permeates every part of the day. And there's a clinging to God. And very lastly, and very briefly, it culminates with a joy in God. Look at verse 9. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They, they will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is not cheap joy. A little bit of a thrill. But a joy that recognises that justice must come to those who reject God and those who reject God's people. Justice, if you didn't know, is just, it's just the flip side of the, the other side of the coin of God's love. And you've got to choose one, and one only. And when you choose love, there's only one natural response, and it will manifest itself in each of us very differently. But the king rejoices, he praises God. Do you? Or will your mouth be silenced as you face the other side of the coin of God's love? That is his justice. Think how you begin your day. Do you thirst for God in this dry and weary land? Think how you live today and tomorrow in the wilderness in which we live. With deep gratitude for God in your hearts, his power and his glory and his covenant faithful love. Do you cling to him or do you cling to yourself in who you are and the star-spangled banner of your life? And lastly, do you have real joy in God? Life is tough. It is a wilderness out there, if you like. So remember one day we will thirst no more. Our gratitude for God will be fully realised and we'll be able to cling to God for eternity in his presence with fullness of joy. We have everything we need now. But there is infinitely more to come.
So start tomorrow with these words. Verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Why don't you start tomorrow that way and see what happens. Let's pray. Just a moment of quiet to reflect and maybe pray some of that which we've heard into our own hearts and minds.